welcome to Now to Talk, the podcast all about nouns. This is a show where we interview members of the DAO and project builders in the ecosystem. I'm your host, CDT, and today I'm chatting with the hero Shep and Honk Diddley, the team behind the Rocco Project. We get into their past experiences with crypto, they explain how to get started in AI and machine learning, and we even dive deeper into what Rocco means for the future success of nouns. We get into all the specifics about what the Rocco project is setting out to accomplish and what challenges lie ahead. Hope you like it. As always, you can find Now to Talk wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out on Twitter at CDT underscore ETH. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, good morning. Thanks for being here, guys. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks, CDT. Okay, so before we get into everything, let's go ahead and do a little bit of intro. So today we have Honk Diddley and the hero Shep. So Honk, why don't you start us off? Sure. I am Honk Diddley. I am a member of the Noun style. I've been a member since like March, I think. Been very fun. I have a background in electrical engineering and software engineering. Been involved in startups basically for the past 10 years and been in a lot of different industries from healthcare to finance and have had a lot of very interesting side businesses including retail soap making uh making crib sheets for babies kind of done a little bit of everything so just try and always find something that's an opportunity to learn and expand my knowledge of whatever's around me yeah sounds like you've tried a ton of stuff that's awesome before we dig into all of that, Shep, maybe a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. I guess kind of similar background, studied electrical computer engineering. After that worked, you know, as an engineer, making robots and toys even. Got into data and analytics consulting. I'm a really big fan of machine learning, something that I've been really interested in for about a decade now. And after consulting, got into the education side of things. Education's been a really big part of my life. So been for the past couple of years working at a small startup, teaching kind of AI machine learning concepts to middle and high schoolers. So that's what it started as. It's kind of grown a lot from that. But yeah, it's a little bit about me. Um, for the crypto side, don't have my noun yet, but been involved in crypto for a while. I mean, you know, <laughs> heard about Bitcoin back in, I think like 2014, but then got into the ETH ecosystem more when one of my friends was building like a music platform called Catalog Works. And ever since, I've kind of been as deep as I can in Web3, and it's been a fun ride. How did that project get you into the ecosystem? Did you work on it or get involved directly? I just thought it was really interesting. I talked with him while he was building the platform and just like hearing how he was approaching these new ideas of ownership and compensation it just aligned really well with kind of like my vision of where the internet was kind of going in the future and where it kind of had been and the evolution of how ownership and communicating with your thousand true fans, for example, I saw Ethereum as a really interesting ecosystem for thinking about things like that. And so I just started doing a whole bunch of research and went down a bunch of different rabbit holes, whether it be ownership of things or education there's a lot of really interesting Web3 projects. And so, you know, having someone to talk through it and then eventually, you know, I I found this kind of alpha Discord community that I've been in for, you know, like a year and a half at this point. And those, some of those people have become really good friends. So it was just kind of a rabbit hole that I started down and 
never got out of and I'm happy not to. <laughs> yeah. And like a lot of people who join the space and kind of take on different identities, where did the hero Shep come from and what does that mean? I'm a big fan of generally the notion of pseudonyms. Like you have like a benefit that comes with privacy, being able to share kind of your opinion, but then you also have this component of a track record and reputation that changes over time. And also I really like this concept of, it it seemed to me that people were more open to engaging with you on Twitter if your profile picture was not a human face. So from last time when I started getting more and more into Web3, I wanted something that wasn't human and also something that would kind of stick out if people saw my name a few times and also something that kind of would inspire me. I do think that names and kind of thoughts have a lot of power and weight to them. So, you know, like one of the coolest pieces of media that I think has ever been made is Daft Punk's album Discovery. And they made a movie, Interstellar 5555, that while they were making the album, essentially had Toei Animation make this movie that was almost like a music video, but a music movie. Um, and I'm not going to spoil it, but you know, essentially there's this awesome hero who kind of drops everything to come and help people out. And his name is Shep and kind of like the ring of the hero Shep. And it's only, you know, dropped in some like DVD behind the scenes things when you learn of his name. So I, I thought it was kind of cool. And the ENS was available. <laughs> of course, the most important part. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't, I've never heard of that before. Would recommend. Yeah, I need to check that out. And so where do we get the name Honk Diddley from? I was driving in my car one day and I had my phone hooked up to the Bluetooth and it was just like pixel whatever. And I thought that was boring. And I just named it Honk Diddley randomly. That's that's the story. <laughs> so just as deep and just as meaningful as Shep. More or less. Yeah. So Honk, I understand that you've been around the crypto space for maybe a lot longer than the rest of us. Can you kind of dive back into your history a bit, going from electrical engineering when crypto came into your life? Well, I became, I suppose, aware of crypto in 2011. One of the guys who I knew in school kept bugging me about Bitcoin, and I didn't really care to learn much about it because I was an engineer. Why do I need to care about finance? And he was not the most socially astute and just started pushing books on me, like Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, etc., Mises Rothbard. And I was like, look, dude, I don't know if you think this is how you win people over, but I'm not reading these books. So I ignored it. And in 2013, I was working in Silicon Valley at two companies, actually. I was totally hustling. I was working in Mountain View, California for two companies that were very close by, one of which is a behemoth that we all know, I'm not going to say. And while I was attending an event one weekend, I ran into somebody who started shilling me Bitcoin. And I was like, oh, no, another one of these guys. What I didn't know is that this guy had had many entrepreneurial wins. And this is in 2013. And I'd poured millions of dollars into Bitcoin at that time. We're still in touch. He's a very interesting guy. Moving forward, so I I still kind of ignored it uh, because I was just like, okay, one of those guys again. After Mt. Gox, I felt a bit vindicated in my decision to more or less ignore it. In 2015, I was stalking an engineer on GitHub because I really appreciated the work they did. And I saw they were contributing to something called Ethereum. 
I asked another engineer who I respect about what Ethereum was. He said, I don't know, but you know, it sounds interesting. I saw the DevCon 1 videos or DevCon 0, and I was pretty convinced that this was going to be a big thing. I didn't really understand a lot of it, but it did seem very exciting and something that was more relatable than Bitcoin as it had to do with computation. So I started getting involved and it started with me legitimately doing the thing that everybody does, like arbitrage between different exchanges. I remember when GDEX first started supporting Ethereum. So there weren't many exchanges like there was Polynix and Kraken, which supported Ethereum early on. But I mean, you know, it was a slower rollout. I started doing Ethereum consulting, tried to get other businesses to do things with the blockchain. I ran the Austin Ethereum meetup for a few years. I consulted with the Ethereum Foundation. I consulted with dozens of different companies. I was involved with two separate research groups, one known as the Plasma Implementers and another known as the State Channel Researchers Group. I was pretty involved in a number of different facets. I've ghostwritten a lot of marketing materials as well as white papers for different networks, particularly those having to do with layer two solutions, et cetera, and others having to do with threshold signatures. And in 2018, I was in Prague or whatever year it was, I don't remember, for DevCon some number. And I was just wholly unimpressed with what was going on in the space. This is around the time that everybody was very smitten with zero knowledge proofs. And I just didn't see a lot of people trying to do any real worldly good. And it was something that we were talking about for a long time, like, oh, it's early, we'll get to it, etc. And I just really didn't see that. So I departed from the space for a few years before Brennan brought me back into it. And since then, I have been involved in a number of different things. I've been rambling a bit, so I'm not I'm going to cut it there. Yeah, I'm curious if you can talk a bit more about what an Ethereum consultant is, what that means. Is this like on the dev side of things? Is this a higher level? What does that all entail? I did a lot of different things as a consultant. Some of them were technical marketing. A lot of these groups had a lot of really great engineers a few years back, but were not really sure of how to articulate themselves and be able to illustrate more complex concepts to end users or how to make things appealing to end users. And so that was one thing that I chiefly helped out with. You know, that episode of Office Space, like, what is it that you do here? And it's like, I, you know, I talked to the engineers and I talked to the customer. And I was like, kind of like that middle guy, but I actually did something. That was one component. I also helped a number of VC groups and funds with technical due diligence, which was mind-numbing and deeply frustrating, as a lot of VCs in the space just bought and held these assets. Like A lot of people in this space are, I, I'm not going to censor myself here, they're imbeciles. They just got lucky. And people look up to them when really they shouldn't. And I think it's a real shame it's akin to the idea of, you know, a lot of people will look up to Mark Zuckerberg and think he's a great entrepreneur. I don't think so, because the thing is that you have the normal distribution, you have tails here. And he's done a company one time. Everything else that Facebook has done that was successful, so to speak, has been acquired. WhatsApp, Instagram, etc. Like if you look at Jack Dorsey, for instance, Square, Twitter, the other things that he's done, like he's a successful guy. He's, he's done it multiple times. But crypto, it's, it's really a shame. A lot of people and this is me just going off on the people that I had to work with. They just had a lot of hubris and I could do a lot of technical due diligence for them and they would just ignore everything and be like, we're still going to do it. And I also contributed to open source projects 
and did some protocol writing. So I was kind of all over the board. Yeah. And you mentioned at first your friend was trying to get you into Bitcoin. And like a lot of people's stories, people aren't usually just convinced by an overzealous friend. A lot of times people's story is they later, a year or so, whatever, come to it themselves. I mean, that's what happened to me personally. I was aware of Ethereum and Bitcoin a long time ago, but I only came to it recently from a different angle from my own you know, will. So you were around, and then I think you said around 2018, you kind of dropped off for a couple of years because you said there wasn't enough good being done. Can you expand on that? Yeah, it might have been in 2019. The difficulty that I was facing was, and I actually wrote something up about this, a lot of the sort of things that are being built on Ethereum and people weren't actually using it. There was an immense amount of user metrics which were faked. And we still see this today. Prime example of this being on Solana. There was more in-depth report released a few months back on that. And I think that that's really quite egregious and distasteful. You know, if you're building something of value, you shouldn't have to fake user engagement, etc. Now, certainly the initial use cases might be nefarious or not what is originally intentioned, but there should still be interest in utilizing it. One such case for this being Tornado Cash, while it does have capabilities for some nefarious sorts of user activities, it has a lot of good, one such instance being that of Vitalik donating to Ukraine in its ongoing war with Russia through Tornado Cash because he didn't want to be outed as somebody supporting them. And I can imagine that people in Russia doing the same in a public fashion would be reprimanded for doing so. So the frustration chiefly stems from a lot of people in the space just kind of going with what seems popular, not Charlie trying to innovate and not really trying to actually provide any public good. And if there is public good, it being really, really far removed from the actual users whom it could help the most. So that's kind of what I'm getting at is that there's a lot of potential here, but most people are just spinning their wheels, not really doing anything innovative with what there could be. So if that was 2019, when and what made you come back to the space after feeling that way? It was the mindset of like, well, people are going to continue building things that are more or less useless or possibly detracting from like societal goods. And there's nothing I can do to just like stop them from doing what they're going to be pursuing. But I can certainly become involved and continue on with a number of different projects because like there will be good things that come of this and it isn't necessarily that they need to be doing all these positive sort of outward facing things at the moment but i've come to believe that it's more important to understand a longitudinal model for these newfound organizations or applications that they can be self-supporting. And then once you've cracked that, you can try to explore these other markets. I think it should really be the other way around, that you go find what people want and are willing to use, and you pursue that immediately, and then it grows. But I don't think that that is the case with blockchain at this point in time, sadly. Hmm. I'd like to turn it back to Shep for a little bit and 
Speaking of doing good, I'd like to hear about, Shep, your background in education, kind of how you came to being an educator and what all that involves. Yeah. So how I got involved with education, well, education's kind of always been a big part of my life. I think I learned differently than most people and kind of very conscious about it. Uh, my mom was a French teacher for 15 years. Like I worked at a math camp, like was a chess tutor growing up and always just like thought education was key problem. You know, I, I saw it as a, a shared commonality on many problems is that there's a lack of education from one or both sides. And so, you know, was always really interested in that and got into the science of successful learning. And then really when the pandemic hit, I just started putting all my time into combining kind of like what I had learned as a consultant with my machine learning and computer engineering background and built a couple of different projects. One, I built a website that automatically summarized research papers as they were posted on a daily basis to a website called Archive, arxiv.org. It's a site most people won't have heard of unless you are in the research space. But if you are in the research space, you definitely will have heard it. I think it gets like 20 million people who view it each month. There's a ton of really interesting information there. So I summarized that and then you know, got into another project for the Futures Forum on Learning Tools competition, where I, along with like a few peers, built a tool that was kind of like a modernization of the paper multiple choice exam, where you could just use your phone to grade it instead of a Scantron. And, you know, it could, if the teacher had tagged each question with a topic, they could get targeted feedback at the end of, or when grading it. So instead of just saying, hey, you got to be, it's like, hey, you crushed all of the problems on this topic, but none of them on this one, you know, can help direct your studying kind of going forward. So just got really excited into this. Like there's a whole learning engineering Google group. There's a lot of people really interested in this kind of stuff. And I also felt really passionately and still feel very passionately about AI education being something that is needed. And so just started looking around for opportunities there and found this really small startup that I'm working at currently, that was really just a summer camp with 40 kids. And you know, I, I joined starting part-time, but then kind of came on full-time when they managed to get 300 kids signed up for the next summer, but didn't have anyone to really run it. So at that point, I went from kind of being the first hire to being the head of product. And then eventually kind of, they added me to the founding team and grew from that 40 kids summer camp to 300 the next year to 800 this year. But you know, the thing that I'm most excited about really is that some of these students are incredible and being able to see them hungry to continue learning after camp we kind of rolled that into having them being able to like work for us after school and on weekends so instead of having to work you know at your local grocery you can work as a software engineer or um you know a system architect and we're helping build out curriculum and so kind of that grew and then we formalized that like i built out this incubator program for us, which we had 30 of our best, you know, nominated from summer students run through it last year. And then, you know, some of those 30 ended up being pretty incredible and enabled us to grow to 800 this past year and deliver a summer experience that was the best we have so far. And now we've got 100 people going through the incubator right now. It's like a 10 week product sprint that hopefully we will will prepare these people for, you know, working at a professional level and then kind of enable them to do so either for us or a couple external partners. You know, one team from last year was working on building out NFT analytics tools for an alpha discord for seven months and then has built kind of like their own NFT project this summer. That's been a whole lot of fun. But yeah, so that, that's kind of how I got into it and, and where we're at now. 
So you're kind of introing them to AI, to coding, and to crypto at the same time? Uh, so crypto comes a little later. Yeah, introducing them to AI and, and programming and then the like the very best ones who are the and when I say best, I really just mean motivated because one of the things that we focus on a lot is like learning how to learn and this idea that we've gone from a time of information scarcity to information abundance on the Internet where now it's not about finding a source. It's validating that that source is worth your time and figuring out how to you know improve your own skill set. So we have these students go through, learn the basics of AI and programming, and then kind of take the next step and do that, build a 10-week product sprint. And so for these students, they built an NFT analytics website from scratch in 10 weeks, despite not knowing what React was or Django or how to use SQL or what an NFT was. They were able to, able to put that together in 10 weeks and then turn that into like a contract for seven months from a Discord group that was paying for this team of three students to work for them after school and on weekends for those seven months to build out tools for them. So they did that for the past seven months. And so by doing that, they learned about crypto and they were able to get paid for that, which is kind of like, you know, a big goal of ours is shortening that feedback loop from learning about something and then getting paid to implement it. That's amazing. What's the age range or grade levels of these kids? Our youngest working for us right now is 14. <laughs> wow. But it goes up to, um, we just had someone who finished their freshman year of college who you know, was working for us, then did a software engineering internship during the summer. And now they're back to work for us you know, after school during the fall. That's amazing. How many kids do you think you've taught? A few thousand. You know, wow. This year we taught 800 just from our summer. And then last year we taught 300 from summer. We did 100 from winter. And then we did last summer big pushes for diversity and inclusion. So 10% of our spots are all full scholarship and we give a big scholarship or like a partial scholarship to most other people who apply. And last year we did a free course where we taught a couple thousand people like fundamentals. Um, we didn't have you know the resources to be able to do that again this year. But yeah, it's really cool, you know, seeing it grow. Yeah. I mean, without being too doxing, are you comfortable sharing the name of this program for those listening and interested or? You can look up AI Camp and you'll be able to find it. Cool. So do you have maybe some recommendations for people who can't go to AI camp, who are just listening at home to get started with AI, whether it be like kind of the dev route? Is there a non-developer route to getting involved with AI? Definitely. So I'd say, you know, in terms of where you should start with learning AI, I'd say start where you're interested. Start with what you like to do on a daily basis, because I guarantee you AI has started to impact that field in some capacity at this point. There's a lot of different types of AI, like computer vision is the idea of identifying an object in an image, right? Like that's what I used for the paper multiple choice modernization. There's something called natural language processing, which I'd say is where most people could start immediately if they wanted to. So natural language processing is this idea. It's what it sounds like, right? Natural language, being able to have a AI or, or machine learning tool that communicates via natural language, either to be able to understand natural language. So, you know, historically it's like sentiment analysis. Is this review a positive or a negative review, right? But now it's kind of moved into having these large language models, which are this huge breakthrough that's happened recently in machine learning, but has enabled essentially these large models to learn some semblance of language by examining huge volumes of data from the internet. And anybody can go to beta.openai.com slash playground and start messing around with GPT. And it's really just like a really fancy autocomplete. So I use it in my day-to-day -to, -day to write emails. And so like an example of how you'd 
use it to write an email would be like, we are a group of, you'd type in a prompt and the prompt would be like, you know, we are a group of very experienced marketer, digital marketers. And we received this email, paste your email. We created like a really engaging and concise response that covered these three bullets. Then you type out the three bullets that you want to have in your email. And then you type, here's the email. And then you have it just generate it and it will make something that's really solid. You can have it regenerate to have something new, like, you know, take parts of it and then have it like maybe you start your tagline or you start your subject line and then you let it kind of go from there. But it's really powerful. We'd really recommend experimenting with it. There's also a really cool blog post called like using GPT-3 to augment human intelligence. And I'd recommend starting there if you're interested at all. Awesome. And we're here to talk about the Rocco project, which is a GPT-3 based project. So we'll definitely get into some more specifics about that. Tailing off the advice question, Honk, I'm wondering from your perspective, advice for new people joining crypto, whether that be, again, from the developer side getting involved and even the non-developer side, you having been around for so long, maybe seeing some stuff that works and doesn't work. Do you have any thoughts for people joining the space? It's come a very long way in so far as talent. When I was involved with smart contract development on Ethereum, Truffle didn't exist. A lot of people probably don't even know what Truffle is. The thing to dev on was the testnet called Morden, which was being DDoSed regularly. And so you didn't really, you'd try and deploy a contract and you wouldn't be able to because it was just being DDoSed and you wouldn't understand what was going on. Things were in IRC channels. Like there's a lot of tooling that's come along to greatly assist with this, such as local test nets, et cetera. I think that there is still a very low bar for most engineering talent out there in blockchain. That said, there's a lot of really good resources. And I would encourage people to kind of go through and understand why libraries like Open Zeppelin exist that push certain standards and to understand the shortfalls that have occurred in the past, probably the most notable one being the reentrancy bug and the DAO contract. But to understand that is very important. There's a lot of scams. There are a lot of probably over-engineered solutions to problems that don't necessarily exist. There's a lot of idealism or maybe delusion (laughs) amongst certain things. Like I think that a lot of people don't quite understand the value of decentralized assets and that sort of sovereignty. Years ago, the like push was decentralize everything. That's really difficult. It's really cool, but it's also really difficult. And it has a massive sort of trade-off in terms of user experience and convenience. So this is kind of the whole idea of there's a reason why we have currency instead of just doing bartering. Bartering is great. It's peer-to-peer. There's nobody to really take anything off the top, but it's really inefficient. So I think that people who are getting involved in Web3 should take some of the best Web2 practices they know and try and apply it because a lot of them still are applicable and should find this sort of medium between the Web3 and the Web2 spaces where users are able to have the sovereignty of Web3 and the user experience of Web2. One of the biggest difficulties with Web3 has been onboarding users and getting people up to speed with everything. That can all be pushed to the background. 
there's nothing stopping somebody from creating a Web2 game that has Web3 assets within it with some sort of wrapper to do transactions for exchanging those assets. And once you have something like that, you can take those assets because they're yours, because again, it's sovereign. And you can take them to other games, etc. I don't know if you ever played anything like World of Warcraft or any sort of MMORPG where people are in-game as merchants exchanging items. I think that it opens up a whole new economy. That's a really awesome and valuable thing. So I would say that there are some things that are specific to Web3 to learn, specifically all of the hacks that have occurred, but that you should try and find a happy medium between Web2 and Web3 instead of just going all in on one of them. They both have their strengths and they both have their weaknesses. Yeah, there tends to be a little bit of all or nothing in people's opinion sometimes without wanting to see the benefits from both. Also curious because at the time of this recording, the merge is happening this week and I'm sure you've been hearing about this for years. Do you have any general thoughts about that happening this week? I mean, this has legitimately been on Ethereum's roadmap since Ethereum, before Ethereum launched. I remember some of the early designs of it that were just simply unworkable. And I thought to myself, well, this is basically unworkable. And I still have major difficulties with the existing model, but you know, nothing is perfect. And I'll, I'll speak to those. So there are a lot of different sort of perspectives through which one could view the merge. One of them being this whole idea of energy efficiency. People regularly berate Bitcoin for proof of work. I think that proof of work is totally fine because it's legitimately expending energy to create value. And if you look at things like mining, which is why Bitcoin mining is called mining, it's legitimately putting in man hours of a pickaxe or time spent into building TNT or these machines to take ore from the earth and then refine it. And that is of value. Most people listening to this are going to be very removed from that process, maybe never even seen a mine. But that's legitimately what our society is still built on. It's built on raw resources and the harvesting and refinement of them. So I, in that sense, I think that proof of work is justified in its energy use. In terms of proof of stake, it is a little nepotistic, I think. It's definitely novel and cool, but it's like if you have a certain amount of money, you can get involved. But if not, you, you really can't. And one could argue the same for mining. The thing is that anybody can just start mining in a proof of work system. With this proof of stake one, you need to, and you'll likely join a, a mining pool with Bitcoin. Same thing with Ethereum. But with the new source set up with proof of stake, you need to have a certain, a much higher threshold to be able to participate with a validator, right? 32 ETH, and you need to join a pool. You'll likely end up joining Lido. And validators are selected in proof of stake in a semi-random fashion, which is nice because you basically take a whole bunch of validators and you're like, all right, you guys, this random group will be selected for validating these shards or these blocks, whatever it might be. And so you can really kind of mitigate the chances of collusion. The difficulty is that there's this group called Lido, which a lot of validators have joined. And so it's like, you know, you can try and stop collusion. But what's the point if the majority of all the validators are legitimately just in one pool? And you might be like, oh, well, you know, they're separate validators. 
Well, here's the thing is that like the validators in this pool, I believe are managed by the Lido DAO. And that's run by just a few entities. Of course, you know, there are a lot of people that hold these tokens, but it's kind of similar to like the Bored Ape Yacht Club Ape token holders. I believe Paradigm has like 10% of the tokens for Lido and the DAO, and as well as a few other VC groups. And so there are really just a few major parties that can kind of direct where the DAO is going. And the DAO again controls everything related to the miners, which are a part of it. And nobody can really go easily join another. Well, you can join another validator pool, but it's just it doesn't make sense. And whenever you have a large pool of validators, you get to take advantage of more MEV or maximal extractable value or minor extractable value, which is where you arrange transactions in a way such that it benefits certain network participants who are maybe front running or trying to eke out some extra slippage from trades. And, and those are incentivized through fees, etc. But basically, it doesn't make any sense for a validator to go with any other pool for the minor extractable value thing. The fact that you can have an idea of what validator groups are going to be coming after you so you can do multi-block MEV. The rewards paid on Lido are better. As a result, rewards paid on Lido to validators are better than those of other pools. And yeah, I mean, like the, the merge is an exciting thing, but I find that to be a really hard pill to swallow that basically the group that's controlling what validators are going to be running the network is a handful of VC groups. And there are plenty of Lido holders, but the large swath of voting power is just in a handful of people, really. Yeah, I'd like to direct our attention back to nouns and start to dig into that a little bit. But before we talk about the Rocco project that you both spearhead, let's hear a little bit about how you came to Nouns in general. And we'll start with you, Honk, because you actually own a Noun. You are part of the Nouns DAO. So when did you join and when did you first become aware of Nouns? I became aware of Nouns in like February, maybe. Brennan, who's somebody who I've known for quite some time, I'm good friends with, told me about it and it seemed like a DAO that wasn't terrible or like, you know, an FT project that wasn't slash DAO that wasn't terrible. I lurked for a little bit and seemed cool, seemed like things were actually happening within it. They weren't just like spending all of their money. And it seemed like something that could be longitudinal, that could really go the distance as a potentially sustainable model. So, you know, I said, forget, I'll, I'll go ahead and throw my hat in here. Yeah. And since February, it's been roughly six months. What's the experience been like? And what have you kind of gotten your hands into? When I initially joined, I wanted to try to move things in a direction more geared on utilizing the treasury towards various development efforts and found those to be met with a lot of friction. I found that a lot of people in the DAO are lurkers. They don't really say much. And if you have a loud voice, you can really kind of do a lot. And a lot of people, I hate to say it in the DAO, are followers. They won't be the first to kind of take action. They'll wait until somebody else says something, which kind of goes along with the whole lurker thing. And it can be very frustrating. The DAO has done really awesome things. It's a good group of people, a lot of very thoughtful people, but simultaneously, a lot of people who are maybe disengaged. There are quite a few who just thought of this as like an investment and they went off wherever. They may not even be in the Discord. I don't know. 
The people who are in it, I really do quite enjoy. It's a very special group of people. However, I, I do wish that people would speak up more and speak their minds. I think there's a lot of self-censorship as well as inability to easily come to consensus, which will lead to a lot of unmet expectations within, like, say, for instance, putting an on-chain proposal. To give a topical one, The Sound of Nouns by Super Tight Woody, which is basically a nouns fork that makes music. And it's something that I think was really thoughtful, but, you know, a lot, a lot of people really had voted on it or it's kind of like a slow kind of inflow. And it didn't seem as engaged by the community as I was hoping that it would be. But then again, there are things like the Xanadu collab that people were very excited about. If there weren't so many lurkers, you'd have a lot of chefs in the kitchen. There'd be a lot of difficulty in organizing things. But I think that some people have difficulty in a lack of feedback, which is probably better than too much feedback. So there's no like silver bullet. I think that the DAO is evolving and getting better. I think that there's a lot of really cool things on the horizon, such as Rocco. But it's still dealing with people, which is never a simple task. Some of these issues, do you think they're specific to nouns or you would find in any other DAO or group of people that come together to work on something? They're human issues. This happens with whatever sort of group you're forming. So you touched on Rocco and I think that's where Shep comes in. So Shep, what's your noun story? Yeah, I've been aware of nouns for a while because I got into NFTs, I think in like March of last year or May of last year, whenever everyone was on Rarible, whenever that was a thing. But I share some of like Honk's opinion, I, definitely not all of them, but I share some of Honk's opinions about how like a lot of the content on ETH is not super interesting. But then when you get to that higher level, like the interesting projects and topics and things people working on on ETH are really interesting. So when I saw NounsDAO kind of get created and watching it grow, like I thought it was an awesome way to use this system of smart contracts, right? Like, okay, cool. This is a system that's going to happen every day. There's very clear rules to it. We can define those relatively simply, but those simple rules can create some really complex behavior and love stuff like that. Love Conway's Game of Life, same kind of idea. But watching nouns kind of grow was awesome. And then a big part of at least my Web3 experience has been this NFT alpha discord that I've been in. And like, I don't even really want to call it an alpha chat because it's more about people from different parts of the NFT ecosystem, whether it be, you know, a dev who's been working on the ecosystem for years or people who are holding board apes or whatever. This community has made it a lot easier for me, at least, to navigate the space. And I'd really encourage other people to try and find a community similar. Nouns definitely is one, but there are many, and I'd try and find one that resonates with you. But someone in that group knew I was working with some of these students on an AI NFT project this summer. And you can check it out if you want. It's like keyo.ai, K-E-Y-O. It's actually inspired a bit by Nouns, where there's you know an AI-generated image that comes up every day that if you have your wallet connected... It's like Wordle, where there's an AI-generated image, and you have to guess the prompt that was used to create it. But if you get it, then you can mint that image as an NFT. And every time somebody mints that NFT, the first one's free, then the price goes up a little bit after everybody mints it. So cool concept. I was working on that project, and one of the people from that community like hit me up in 4156's tweet about buying Rocco and wanting it to be the first AI participant in a DAO. And so I hopped into Noun's Discord and started asking some questions about it and just saw that a lot of people were hopping into the Discord and just saying like, hey, this is my idea. 
in response to your proposal, like, let's run with it. But you're not seeing a lot of response there. And I think it's, you know, a lot because like, I wanted to understand like where 4156's head was at, um, what he was trying to build with that. So just started having more conversations with 4156 and Brian was a huge help in kind of getting initial data because the first iteration of Rocco, I was trying to recreate like a vote from a nouner. So what that consisted of was using code that Brian provided, which was awesome, to scrape all of the votes that have happened in the past that had justification for them. And that worked okay. <laughs> a lot of people put their justification as either blank or like nouns goggles, nouns glasses, or something else that doesn't necessarily convey why they voted in that way. So it was okay. We got something working after a couple of weeks, but didn't really have that big of an impact. 4156 went on vacation for a bit. And I just like couldn't really shake this idea that like AI could be a really good participant. So I started doing some research and there's actually a lot of research on how AI could support governance. It can help with information overload, making it easier to participate for people. Like there are some real ways that AI could help. And there's been like theoretical research into it. And then seeing at work and outside of it, like the impact that these large language models could have, my thought was like, all right, well, like what if we try and address some of those issues with these large language models that can read, understand, and generate language to some capacity? And instead of trying to have it just be a single participant, why not reframe our idea to have it be like, how can we use AI to enable all of the other participants to be a little bit better? And that's kind of like one of the big overarching themes of AI that has gotten me interested in it is this idea that you can give an individual person a lot more capabilities. Like I think there's never been another time in history where an individual person can have such a big impact on the world. And so using that as a premise, it was like, okay, well, like what if we can build something that can make it easier for everybody else? And so like wrote a proposal on it. And then I think that really resonated with a lot of people. And we got that proposal kind of approved. And so like the first things that we were going to tackle are one, making Rocco's review. So you know, a new proposal comes in, we've got Rocco's take on it, right? like a quick summary, how much it's going to cost, if Rocco would vote for it or not, and what would make Rocco change his vote, right? Like having a pro and a con or like a contrarian point of view and did a bit of prompt engineering, which we can talk a little bit about or let more later if you want, but got a working proof of concept without that much trouble. And so I think that's where people got really excited. It's like, okay, cool. This actually can really well summarize these proposals. Maybe it's not perfect, but it definitely gets the gist done and it definitely saves a lot of time. And that's just like the first place that it can kind of be built out. So I, I won't get too much into like what we're doing now, but that's a little bit of the story. So let's go back a little bit and kind of level set for people. So Rocco is a noun that was bought by 4156. It has the computer head. It has the Ethereum logo on the shirt. It's kind of the perfect noun to be the AI participant. Can you explain and kind of dive in a little more technically into GPT-3, which is what Rocco is? Because you hear stuff that it GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters trained on all this data. It's a large language model. There are transformers. Can you kind of explain to people that don't understand what all that means? kind of the different parts of it? Yeah, I'll keep it pretty high level, but like there's some really great explanations out there. Andre Karpathy is a famous AI researcher and he's put out a lot of content on Transformers. So if you're interested in like the technical stuff, you can definitely find some resources out there, but I'll, I'll kind of keep it at a high level. So the big deal of these large language models is a lot behind this concept of self-supervised learning. So 
in the past with machine learning, often what you'd have to do is you'd have to give it examples or give it data to learn from, right? So you can be like, all right, this is a picture of a cat. This is a picture of a dog. Here's a bunch of different examples. All right, now here's a new picture. Tell me if it's a cat or a dog. That's something called supervised learning. Then you have unsupervised learning, which is just like learning patterns in data. So giving unstructured data and just trying to find patterns on it. And then there's something called self-supervised learning, which is what these large language models use. That's kind of a mix of the two. So this idea is that instead of having to have like a bunch of data on like, this is an input, this is your output, this is what we want. It can just hold a lot of information kind of as context. So when you hear like, you know, 175 billion parameters, one way of thinking about that is kind of like the number of neurons you have in your brain. And now we're getting a little bit into like neuroscience and how it like overlaps with machine learning and AI. But this idea is that each one of the neurons in your brain is like a perceptron in machine learning and is responsible for like identifying how a very specific part of an input can impact a very specific part of the output. And when you put a whole bunch of those together, it gets like really good. And this works really well with these models because they were just fed hundreds of gigabytes of data and from content on the internet, from forums to like books in the public domain, to Stack Overflow, to everything really. And you can look into some of how some of these open source ones are trained, like Eleuther AI trained something on what's called the pile, which is just a ton of data that you can look at. But it has all this data now, like in its kind of memory almost, And then you only need to provide it with very few examples for it to get kind of the gist of what you're saying now because it has so much more context. So for example, what we're doing with Rocco a bit, it's like, all right, here's an example of a proposal, create a summary for that. And after, you know, it does that a few times, you can take that summary, which is gonna be pretty good, and you edit it, you have some subject matter experts. Right now we have some volunteers from Nouns who have been amazing that go through and kind of change it to make sure that it, is really like a a better response. It's like a human level response if it wasn't in that case. And then you can kind of like associate that initial data that you passed in with now your perfect response out. And typically with machine learning, you'd need like hundreds of or thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of those examples. But with this new self-supervised learning, because it holds all that information in context, you only need really like 50, 100 or a couple hundred examples for it to get really good at that specific task. So that's kind of like a high level breakdown of what self-supervised learning is and what these large language models are. GPT is the most famous of the large language models, and it's created by OpenAI. And it's closed source, but they have a very good API that you can use with it. And it's not that pricey. They just reduced all of their prices by two-thirds this month. Worth messing around with. But there's definitely other open source alternatives Forefront.ai is a cool website where you can train open source alternatives to it. We're specifically using GPT-3 as the back end of this model just because it's really performant and has higher ease of use. But you know, we're not kind of locking ourselves into any infrastructure because the really key piece here is the data, which we could pass into any model and open source or otherwise. Yeah. So forgive the basic questions, but I just want to understand when you say training the model and you feed it nouns, data, proposal data, very specific stuff. Is anyone else who goes and interfaces with the API, is it one model? And could anyone else ask it a question about nouns now after you fed it a bunch of nouns data and it just knows someone else across the world, right? Or are we looking at like our own kind of instance of it, if that makes sense? Yeah, great question. And ask a whole bunch more of these. Like, I do think that 
a lot of language for like AI and machine learning and just, you know, in general for technical subjects, they use complicated names, but the topics themselves aren't super, super difficult to understand. And so like this idea of fine tuning a model, which is what we call it, you will take their pre-trained model and then you'd fine tune it on your own data. And then that's now a new model, right? There's literally like a model file that you could save. I don't think you could actually save it from GPT, but someone across the world could use that if they were using the same open AI account. Yeah, you would have like a specific name for the model that you've just fine tuned. And then that's the one you can call for when you want to get a new response, or we would call that inference in the industry. Got it. So you talked about, and this question is for both of you, how you want Rocco to come and start assisting, kind of augmenting the way current DAO members can do things or participate and kind of be more involved by augmenting or helping them out. But to take that a step back, where do you think that governance is weak at the moment? And Honk, we can turn to you. There's a lot of information, obviously, to digest, which a lot of people will just kind of nope out of. And that's probably one of the reasons for the higher levels of delegation of people's nouns and why we see these larger voting blocks and just a few people. I think that by helping people to digest what they're most interested in, it would cause less stress for people who are trying to keep up with the DAO as well as allow them to feel more in control and justified with the decisions that they make. So that's kind of the initial sort of take on governance. On on top of that, there's a lot of things happening in a lot of different places. And so being able to have some sort of assistant that allows you to kind of dive into things from one place versus going to discourse and nouns.wtf and noun center and prop house To be able to just query it from one place is a very big benefit that I think will very likely cause more people to be active and may even bring some people out of a lack of engagement, so to speak. So it makes me think about what Shep was saying about his project, kind of summarizing research papers on archive. So if we have a ton of information and we're only going to get more members writing more posts and more community members making more proposals and things are just being summarized more things are being summarized and kind of diluted down to its bare points. Is there an issue there with maybe losing context? I would say, well, obviously, but also no. Obviously, you will lose context if you reduce the size of any substantial amount of text. But that's not necessarily the point. The point is to be able to understand what is most interesting to users and to be able to provide that to them in a sort of feed. It isn't necessarily that you have. 200 words to work with to capture everything going on in nouns. It's that you have a certain amount of words to capture what a user is interested in that's going on in nouns. And hence, we have this idea of being able to include things like user profiles, settings. You know, I only want to know about updates relating to esports or digital merchandise or sub DAOs of nouns. While this other guy wants to know about IRL events, as well as physical merch and philanthropy. So you don't necessarily just need to constantly make things shorter and shorter and shorter. There can be a terminal length dependent upon what all people are interested in. We can just provide them that subset, which I think can find a good medium between the context needed to better understand things. And on top of that, you know, we will always provide people with the source material so that they can understand the bigger picture 
if they'd like to go in and understand things to a greater extent. Yeah, I mean, you can always go back and read the original post, but I like what you were saying. You're kind of subscribing to the aspects of the DAO, the topics that you care about most. But yeah, let's hear your thoughts, Chip. Yeah, this is actually like a super important question and one that I have a lot of conversation about is that, yes, like whoever is determining that this is a good summary or this is not a good summary, when you're changing information, right, you're starting to take on the responsibility a little bit of like a news agency, right? Like what you're cutting out is inherently going to have impacts down the road. And that's why I think actually that nouns in this kind of project is the perfect implementation for something like this, because you can get so many people to give their opinion on what that is. And that's like one of the most exciting parts of what we're working on, like literally right now. And Steve's not here, but Steve's been volunteering time to start building this out, which has been awesome, is building out this like interface so that people can participate in the kind of identification of what it means to be a good summary and in what capacity. So what that looks like is, you know, say that there's a proposal and it gets summarized into, you know, Rocco's five bullet points for his Rocco review. And every time that comes out, it goes to a website where holders can connect their wallet and see the proposal that Rocco reviewed, right? And if that's something that falls into the topics that you're interested in, you're probably going to go through and read the whole thing rather than just Rocco's review. Maybe it's about esports and Hawks got in and checked it out. And then Hawk sees Rocco's review at the end and it's like, oh, okay, this looks pretty solid. But after reading it through, you know, there's this point that they missed or this point. And really, I don't think that it should be a support. It should be an abstain or something like that. You can go in and actually make that edit themselves. And then that edit can then be passed back into Rocco as like a part of that fine tuning process we talked about so that it reflects that person's kind of like contribution and input there. And so that's why I think an organization like this is so and, and this tool in particular, which I haven't really heard uh, anybody building something like this before, like we're just making it easier to do fine tuning and have a lot of people participate in that. The reason I don't think it's really been built before is it might have been built before, but I haven't hasn't been brought to my attention is because they're just getting a group of people that are willing to contribute to this is not easy and getting one that's willing to contribute and excited about AI and, you know, will continue to contribute on an ongoing basis is also not easy. So that's why, like, I'm really excited about kind of the direction this project has started to go and the fact that it can be a collaborative effort through that fine tuning. Now, that's just like the first step, because after that, it's about like understanding what data has gone into the model to kind of have it create its current decisions on what it summarizes. But that's kind of a little bit of the direction of the conversations that people are having around open sourcing the Twitter algorithm, for example, like just understanding what is impacting that summarization and how I could potentially as a participant change that or put my own opinion on it, I think is, I've said it a few times, but why this platform is such an interesting, it's such a good one, I think, for this experiment. Yeah, awesome. Shep, that's super exciting from the noun owner side of things, the actual DAO members. How can they help maybe collaborate with Rocco in this project and kind of what would you ask from them on their side to make this thing great? So right now we're working with some of the holders, some of the nouners who are spending time volunteering to help us take some of you know, these outputs that Rocco is creating. So like the reviews of a proposal, for example, and doing a few edits to them to make sure that they accurately represent a view of a nouner and that it's 
formatted in a way that they think is, is good. And then that is data that we can then pass back into the model to train it further. If you're really interested and you really want to help with the project, come over to announce the AI Nouns channel and say, hey, you know, we're always looking for help. But hopefully in the near future, you know, we've got Steve heads down working on a user interface that will enable anybody to help us on a web interface where they'll just be able to see all of the generation that Rocco has created and then be able to give those like upvotes, you know, if they're solid or like edit them if they're not. And that's where hopefully you'll be able to get some more participation, even just sharing the content that comes out of Rocco too. You know, like it's, I think it's going to get to a point where it's, you know, the way that people can help is just having them lean in, you know, like use it. Hopefully it's helpful to you, um, give feedback, just use it. Yeah, be a part of the ecosystem. I don't think that there's anything too, too specific um, right now. Yeah, you mentioned the web app that's in the work. Can you explain what Rocco is doing today and what you guys are working on fully developing? Like all the touch points that when it's kind of firing on all cylinders, it will kind of paint me the picture of Rocco fully integrated into the DAO. Yeah, sure. So we've made a lot of progress in a month and a half and we have a month and a half left to go. So in the past month and a half, we were able to set up pipelines so that Rocco now can take in any proposal and spit out a five bullet response, which is a little bit easier said than done. And we've gone through a round of feedback to get, you know, like 50 of those responses edited by those noun holders, some of the awesome volunteers that we've got and fed it back into the model. So now we have a slightly improved model already. That's where we're sitting with the reviews. So that's awesome. Rocco can review anything that's passed into him via Discord. Shout out Honk for getting that integrated. That works. It's in Discord right now. And then we also have Rocco working call to meeting note pipeline as well. So it'll automatically transcribe a call into text and then use you know, a large language model to summarize that text into meeting notes. So both of those things work already and we have the pipeline set up to have that work manually. We're starting on an automated pipeline for both of those things. Rocco now has the ability to hop into Discord calls and record them, although he gets tired. So longer recordings are a little bit tough still right now. But that's kind of where we're at. So we have the manual part done, which is awesome. I expected it to take much, much longer. But again, thanks to people like Honk and Steve and you know others stepping up, like we're able to get a lot more done. So now in the next month and a half before we wrap up is to try and get it automated so that every time you know there's a call, you can invite Rocco via Discord and then it'll pump out that bulleted summary to the owner right away. Similarly, you know we're going to have you know, anytime a new proposal comes out, it's piped out to relevant people right away. Hopefully that's the website. You know, we're pushing on getting that done. Otherwise, we're going to build pipelines to pump it automatically to Discord. If we can get kind of like a review done of the content coming out and we think that it has reached a certain bar, not just us, obviously everyone who wants to come to the meetings on Tuesday mornings, 7 a.m., 10 a.m. Eastern, love to have anybody's point of view there. But once we can get those things done automatically, hopefully we can get it on a website. Otherwise, we pump it out to social media and on Discord. So that's kind of what's coming. And then after that, there's been a lot of rumblings on how we can almost turn this into an AI toolkit for governance. Just this idea of having all of the information of a DAO in a queryable kind of format that can be used to make ongoing decisions I think is a super interesting idea and is it something that a few different people have been having conversations about and, and I think it's a super interesting direction to go in the future. But um, we want to focus on kind of what's ahead of us right now in this next month and a half to wrap up this current contract, but exciting stuff ahead for sure. 
Yeah. And just quickly touch on, you talk about the contract month and a half left, et cetera. Can you kind of give some context on your residency for those who don't know and what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So this kind of started when 4156 bought Rocco and tweeted out that they wanted to have a first AI participant of nouns. I kind of got involved then to doing a little bit of experimentation. Yeah, I first was trying to just recreate what a nouner's vote was by scraping all the data from on-chain of like you know, people who justified their proposals, which is not very many people. But we created something that could recreate nouner's point of view a little bit. But, you know, after doing a lot of research into AI and governance, which there is a good body of work on, people just haven't really applied it with these new large language models as much. It turned into much more of like making an assistant, someone that can support governance and make governance easier and better for the rest of the holders. And so that's kind of like where this proposal came together. So I wrote a proposal after talking with 4156 and Brian J, and then it kind of got passed down a few times and people got really excited about it. Talked with 22, who also was really excited about it and got it approved. So we approved a three-month residency of just kind of like investigating how we could use AI to support governance. When we got the contract signed, the first thought was, all right, maybe we can get Rocco to review these proposals and output a vote. And if we can do that, that'd be great. And if we can do anything else, that'd be gravy. And we got that done in a week instead of a few months, a couple months. And then Honk hopped on so we can get like a lot of pipelines working. Then Honk got some funding. And so, you know, things started getting a lot more progress. So that's kind of like where it started. The residency is about a month and a half in. We got a month and a half left. And as much as part of it was also building these tools, at least for me, part of the charter was education. And every Tuesday, being able to have some interesting or, you know, important news about AI that we cover in the meetings. And that's been a really fun part of the experience as well. People have said they've gotten a lot out of it. Hopefully people are getting a lot out of it. I really love the ability to kind of share this information with people because I really do think that at this point, if you're not using machine learning, you're at a disadvantage. And it's also accessible enough for anybody of any background to like dip their toe into or the vast majority of backgrounds. Yeah. And I love the calls that you guys do on a weekly basis because I think the community is most interesting when we have a diverse background of people. And (laughs) there was never any machine learning talk that was going on really beforehand. And so having you come and, you know, not just work on a project, but also you have these like weekly kind of stand ups to both explain the project, but also just field any questions that people have. And it's completely drop in. Anyone can just come and pick your brains about the project. Yeah, love that part of it. I mean, that I think that's where you get people excited about it, right? And then that's why I said, you know, we, we, you asked me earlier where people can get started with machine learning. There's a ton of like courses out there. You're like fast.ai has a really good like beginner course. Or I mean, if you know how to code, you can hop in there. You can learn how to do basic data science. But whatever is most interesting to you, there's going to be a tutorial. It's like beginner machine learning tutorial involved with gardening or like involved with writing a story, right? Or drawing, right? Or art now. There's a lot of big things that are pushing forward in in those fields, AI-generated art and AI-generated text being big ones, but it can really be applied to a bunch of stuff. It's just a tool. I mean, I had a student last year who was asking me about, I want to be an actor, right? Like, why do I care to be here? My parents signed me up for this. Why should I care? 
And, you know, I, I just asked the rest of the people in the group even just like, hey, can you see any way that machine learning could help an actor? There were a ton of ideas. It was like, yeah, I mean, you could speak out your lines and then you could have something understand those lines and speak out the next one. And so you could have someone practice. You can make a bot that helps you practice or you write something that generates, you know, a custom script that you can practice. And then like it kind of clicked a little bit. And that person ended up being one of our best performers, you know, throughout that whole session because they got really excited about it. And so so I think that that's what a big part of this is for me, hopefully just getting more people excited about the possibilities and also confident that they can start exploring that because you can. And if you get any questions, hop into a Tuesday meeting and ask on the call. I love that. Honk, for you, how's the process been helping developing Rocco? Technically speaking, how's the lift of it all been? It's been great. Alex has his area of expertise and I have mine. And while I like to think that I'm an expert in everything, it's been great because we have our own domains and they complement each other. And so we're able to work pretty effectively and, you know, kind of go heads down and add value to each other's workflows. So, I mean, it's been like a really nice thing. I think that I'm in line with the stuff that Alex is talking about regarding much grander vision for this. And so I'm trying to set up infrastructure to allow this to extend well beyond the summarization, well beyond, you know, having a single Rocco bot, well beyond the DAO itself. I think that's what's most exciting for me is to be able to put in place all of the tooling and such to enable anybody to basically make themselves a personal assistant based upon certain pieces of information, certain types of prompt engineering. I think that's incredibly compelling and quite powerful. Can you expand a bit more on that grander vision? Do you see this extending outside of Nouns DAO? Can other DAOs use this or more solo use cases? Can you kind of paint me a picture? I mean, the main thing that comes to mind for me is the ability for DAOs to have various personal assistants for any sort of need they may have, whether that be governance or taking meeting notes or assisting in their discovery of information going on within the DAO. And for somebody to be able to add Rocco to their Discord server and be able to set Rocco up such that they can say, all right, monitor these channels and start taking summaries of calls, building a corpus, taking down important notes or things within chats, watching Twitter feeds, etc. They can then start building their own corpus to best suit the needs that they may have for, again, like these sort of personal assistance. And Rocco is just kind of like the original, I'm going to collect all this data. I'm going to be something that you can train. I'm the kind of prototype. And then from there, they can roll out things more specific. Like Rocco has all of the podcast information, but I want to make... Pedro or Padro, whatever you want to say. And Padro will be specific to summarizing as well as adding color to what's going on in our podcast community and could even be an active participant at some point in a few podcasts. So that's kind of what I'm alluding to. So what's the state of things like this, tools and Discord bots that already exist? Because, I mean, all of this is a great idea, but the idea of a meeting being recorded and notes being distilled from that is, a, in my opinion, a pretty obvious use case. But I'm not familiar with what's been done in this field or not. There's definitely things out there right, that'll summarize your meeting notes. There's a bunch of competitors. I mean, like otter.ai is one. But I, I think the interesting thing here is not about just the one-time 
or what you would call machine learning, like one shot performance, right? Which is like, all right, here's my meeting notes. I want you to summarize them. The power here is like about not only getting that immediate benefit, but then also having a long-term benefit of organizing data that's often not organized and then taking that and making it usable for the people that it's important to. So right now that's meeting notes, sure, proposals, maybe, right? Like content on Twitter, finding ways to pipe that into where people are gathered the most, which is often Discord right now, but could see that switching. But then being able to like have the capability for each different community that it would be applied to, to have a way to influence how that data is being used, which is the second piece, right? Like right now, there's nobody really setting up this ability for end users to fine tune the model that they're being used for. Because one, it's like a pretty technical thing, but two, you know, it just, this kind of power of fine tuning hasn't been around too, too long. And the performance bump you get from it, it's big, but it's not, the performance you have without it is serviceable. So I don't think people have really started going into this direction. So like we're trying to make it as easy as possible to get people to give feedback on the content we've created so that it can continue to go to improve going forward. It's kind of more of like a long-term view, which we're enabled to do by this structure, this like really cool structure of nouns, right? Like being able to explore and not being you know, tied to this, we need to get revenue like ASAP of like a, a typical company. But it's also really interesting because it doesn't stop at what we can brainstorm, right? Like this is a a tool that can take any input, turn it into any output, and then refine that process. Right now, we've been talking about meeting notes and proposals and notes and Twitter, like because those are things that are useful for nouns. But you know, it could definitely be extended to things like you know helping people write a proposal. Right, like that's that's an input and an output that you can give. So when people try and write a proposal and they haven't specified enough where the budget's going to go. And that's a feedback that typically a nouner has to give, you know, a hundred times a week or something. It's something that could be automated, right? And that's just for nouns use case. There's many, many other use cases for people that might want to have a personification of a text-to-text transaction where you have maybe a virtual agent, a virtual Discord bot that you can ask questions to in a call, for example. I could see a community wanting to do something like that. And so it's building a tool that can store all of that data and enables people to like go back and check it. And it adds like transparency and clarity to what the data is when using one of these big systems where it's particularly important, things like that. The current state, it's kind of two points to it, right? Like having that initial benefit that there's definitely other people like building tools to do, but then also having it be focused on the long-term and how you could have it be something that's kind of customizable and will continue to improve if you set it up correctly the first time. Yeah, I loved your point about helping write proposals. Because I think proposal quality is something that is talked about a lot. And kind of like you mentioned how you used to use it for helping you finish out your emails, the same thing could be said for proposals. On the other side, I wonder if there's any way to help with proposal editing, because I look at a ton of proposals all the time. I think my biggest either complaint or critique for people is just bloat. People write way too much to try to get their point across when oftentimes much less would do. Do you think that's something that could help maybe identify repetition or help distill down the proposal to a leaner state? Oh yeah, for sure. Like, I think that's like a big one. I mean, these are things that are pretty kind of known with proposal writing or like with long form writing with people that don't have a ton of experience, right? Like making sure that you have your ideas conveyed in the smallest amount of words as possible is not super easy to do and takes a lot of time. Also making sure that you have 
the justification of how is this going to proliferate nouns, right? That's a big goal in like a charter of nouns. And a lot of proposals don't call that out as explicitly. So these are things that like we know we've given the feedback hundreds of times, but there's no tool to like automatically give it. And yeah, this is definitely a use case that going back to the prompt engineering of how you get something like this to work. You take the proposed proposal, you pass it in and be like, hey, you know, I'm Rocco and, you know, in charge of helping people improve their proposals. Things that I focus on are making sure that people have it very streamlined, uh, making sure that there's like a very specific call out of how this will proliferate nouns, et cetera, et cetera. Here's my response to them. And then you can have it generate an output that's a response to them. Maybe that's that's what you edit as someone who typically gives feedback. Instead of giving feedback, writing it from scratch, you're now getting Rocco to generate most of your feedback for you. And then you, maybe you edit a few things and then send that out. And then that's kept track of in the data set. You could even then take Rocco's response of, I would suggest you change this proposal in this way and this way, and then have it rewrite the proposal with that feedback taken into account. Like you can literally have it then generate the next step of that. So it's a cool kind of process and it's a cool tool. It's about finding like prioritizing the places where we think that it can have the most impact. And at least right now, just because you know, we don't have a ton of people working on it, but that's where if we can start to put together a more clear, cohesive vision for where this could go, maybe put together a team and kind of have a more serious proposal for it after this one wraps up. Maybe that's the direction that it could go. Yeah, that was my next question. Going back to the future state that was envisioned, what do you see being the challenges with this moving forward? Is it just manpower? Is it time? Is it budget? Are there technical hurdles you guys haven't figured out? Or could you do everything? You just need the time to implement it. I think that we're at a really special time where the capabilities are improving drastically. To give you an idea, like literally using GPT in the past month and a half, on one of their endpoints to their API, essentially, they've gone from accepting a limit of 2,000 tokens of text that you can pass in to doubling it to 4,000. So that was a big change. And they've also reduced costs per call of their API by two thirds. And so those both have happened recently, but you know, one of their API endpoints that we still use has a length limit to how much data you can pass into there. And we're kind of brushing up against that. So we sometimes we have to do summarization and we lose some of the detail there. So it's not perfect. There are workarounds right now. So like we, we know that we can push towards a direction and get something out and that it will improve over time. So I definitely think it's worth doing now in terms of like actually next steps of like what that looks like. We talked about having an AI toolkit for governance, essentially. We have to put together what that actually is going to look like, what our people needs would be. We have a good connection to people, actually, who would be willing to help with this. So it's more about really finding how we can make the biggest impact, right? The reason why I initially structured this proposal in this way was because I figured we were going to be able to get a lot done in those three months. But that's also enough time to kind of get enough done and then think about where you're really going for maybe a longer period of time, maybe six months after that or something, right? And it gives you the ability to deliver, but then also to see where people are using your tools, right? So that's kind of like where we're heading next is like seeing how, what people in nouns care about, right? Because like what I think is the best idea doesn't necessarily matter, I don't think. I think it's more about getting something that people are excited about and care that it will be implemented so that you can have people who will use it once it is implemented so that it makes their lives easier. Like that's the whole point of this project is it's not to solve every problem with DAOs. We're not trying to do anything like that. It's just, you know, trying to increase efficiency a little bit across the board. 
just a little bit easier to understand what's going on, a little bit easier to give feedback on proposals, a little bit easier to stay up to date with what's happening on different calls. And hopefully that little bit for a lot of people ends up making some significant impacts down the road. Totally. And you called it an AI toolkit for governance, right? Tools do not solve everything and you do not have to use all of your tools at the same time. You just use what you need when you need it. Yeah. Yeah. And these are very human problems, like trying to convince people of your viewpoint and have them shift theirs and support your vision, right? Like these are things that it's not a problem technology necessarily solves, but I do think education and having data helps make those conversations easier so that it's no longer like a you versus me thing. And it's more like, hey, we care about the same end goal. Here's some information that we've got. Let's talk about it back and forth. And then you know, maybe we can come to a decision. Yeah. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and have you explain, either of you, the term prompt engineering. Is there an art or is it a science? Because I hear engineering. Alex is an artist. <laughs> I'll, I'll let him talk about his art. I just watch from afar. Yeah. Do you mind explaining maybe more simply for those who don't know? And then feel free to kind of give examples of what a bad prompt may look like and how you would engineer it to be better for the model. Yeah. So prompt engineering is interesting because it's a new thing that, I mean, there's this debate on whether or not it's going to stick around, but to give you a high level explanation of what prompt engineering is, essentially these machine learning models, like these large language models, they are capable of outputting incredible content, but it really depends on your input to the model because you can think of it like a really, really fancy autocomplete, right? If you type, write an email to my boss that I'm sick and you have it, just write an email. It's going to write something, you know, it'll probably be okay. But if you have it, write an email where you're like, we are a group of professional customer service email writers. One of our clients is sick today and they want to send a message to their boss calling out one, that they are sick, two, that they'll be able to answer any emergencies that come up, three, they'll be back on this day. And then below, write the email. And then you have it write the email. You're going to get one that's going to be a lot more aligned with what you're trying to get out of it than just saying, like, you know, write an email. And you can get really creative with that. A lot of our prompt engineering for Rocco is not just here's a text and create a summary of it. It's like, here's a bunch of context about nouns and what Rocco's trying to do. Here's the full proposal. Then here's a breakdown of how we want Rocco to break down this proposal. And then here's the start of that breakdown. And then we pass that in and that's our prompt. So that gives us really good results. I mentioned this article last time um, we were talking, but there's one called Using GPT-3 to Augment Human Intelligence. And that is a really cool essay where it talks a lot about different ways you can use GPT-3. There's a few things that it calls out specifically. So it says that you can use it as a research assistant. So what they call out is they write like write an essay about how we can structure online education around apprenticeship models and communities of practice. And it'll write out an essay. But again, with prompt engineering, you can get creative with that. And this isn't mentioned in the essay, but if you, instead of having it say, like, write an essay about how we can structure, you say, write a Harvard business case study about how we can structure online education apprenticeship, the style of, of writing totally changes. And in my opinion, it gets like way better and has a very structured response to it. And you're able to get something that reflects like a business case study. And a business case study, what does that mean? It just means it's a structured response with like a beginning, middle and end with like your know, pros and cons. And you typically want something like that. So that's a little bit where like prompt engineering comes in. It's about getting creative on 
how you think some of these words will impact this model and then use them in a way and then just you know test with it and see how you can get good responses. It is a little bit of an art right now because it's tough to really know how it's going to impact it. But I think there's a lot of different ways to be really great at it. But it seems to me that one way to make sure that you're using it to the best of its ability over time is to treat it like you would a science experiment, right? Having a thesis of, I want to try and get this to be more verbose, or I want it to be this to be better content, to be more lighthearted, or to be more like this or that, and then have a few different things that you try and keep track of the ones that perform the best, right? Over time, you just have to start learning the ins and outs of it like for yourself, but it also changes for each model because each model has a different memory or what we call like the latent space. And so, you know, your one query on GPT-3 is going to be totally different than the same query in GPT-6B or 6J or something, which is the open source alternative. Yeah. So hopefully that answered your, answered your question a little bit. Yeah, totally. Honk, why do you think it's important to fund experiments like this? Or why do you think maybe more specifically it's important for nouns to fund experiments like this? There was a JFK speech called Why Go to the Moon? And it's really a beautiful speech. And whenever I listen to it, I always cry. But in something there, like he asked, why climb the highest mountain? Why try to get to the lowest depths of the ocean? Because these are hard things and they're worth doing. And, the, you know, you learn a lot in the meantime. And you can help advance our understanding of the universe. As cheesy as that is, I think that furthering any sort of experimentation within the DAO, especially with forward-looking technologies like AI, is a really incredible thing particularly for the fact that there aren't really many strings attached in this sort of setup. Like if you were to be doing this sort of study in academia, there might be some expected sort of output or you wouldn't have as much sort of freedom to explore things. And I think that that's one of the incredible things about the NounsDAO funding projects like this is that it's kind of like, all right, you seem passionate. We're going to let you take the reins and we're going to see what comes out of it. And so I think that in that sense, like you kind of get the best output you could hope for, because again, it's unrestricted. If somebody feels as though they need assistance or like the project could use a little bit more attention, they can always attempt to bring others in. I'm such an example of that. And, you know, like it's going to just be like other people can just join in as well. That I'm probably fitting more into that latter category. But I think that having a large treasury and using it to fund things that can better expand our understanding of public goods, or in this case, I mean, I'm more of a tech guy, so I'm always going to lean in that direction. So I think that having a better understanding of things like AI can better help us to understand actual human consciousness. So that's very compelling. Yeah. And as the DAO enters year two and finds itself more, develops more of its personality and things that it cares about and narrows the funnel of what it wants to give attention to, do you have any hopes of what you'd like to see for year two of nouns? I can't really place my bets on anything aside from those bits which I'm working on. I'm very excited to see where Rocco goes. There are other things which are ongoing that are compelling, but not necessarily in the technology sense. I'd love to see a really big proliferation of the esports pod. I think that we've seen some incredible outputs from that group. And I'd love to see it continue to flourish, especially given the exponential growth of esports over the past five to 10 years. I think that really putting time and effort into the AI bucket is the thing that I'm most excited about. Because again, like it, it helps with a lot of different difficulties. 
particularly those of governance, to be able to have an AI to assist with some of the qualms and back and forth we have would be fascinating. So, you know, it's not necessarily that it would abate or resolve many problems, but it, it, it could, and it'll at least bring a new sort of perspective to the table. So, uh, you know, apologies that I don't have a lot of other, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm really looking forward to the nouns generating even more glasses for various projects or philanthropic causes. I'm just much more focused on the tech side. And this is the most compelling project with no doubt of me at present. Yeah. And Shep, is there any aspect of nouns unrelated to the project you're working on that just excites you that you've kind of seen develop? The whole thing. I mean, nouns has been one of my favorite projects since the beginning. The concept of, I'm not going get, to get into it because I mean, everyone here is a big fan of nouns and you know, if you're not, you should be. But I think the most interesting stuff to me are just seeing experiments happen and seeing people come back with takeaways from them. So I, I don't have anything too specific. Like Hong said, you know, I'm really excited about this initiative, but I think the esports initiative is also really interesting. Um, I do think that is very nounish, you know, to, to have a foothold, but I'm just excited to keep seeing this play out. You know, it's incredible to see over the past year, the treasury go from zero to where it is now and the community growing so much. And it's been awesome for me to have as someone who's been watching more um, from the outside to be able to kind of get involved more recently. So I'm just looking to continue that involvement and, and hopefully help wherever I can. Yeah, I think we've touched on Rocco well enough for now. I do want to shift back to Honk. If you could maybe tell us about some of the non-nouns work you're doing, and I understand you're developing something with another nouner who's a friend of yours, Brennan. Could you tell us a little bit about what that project is? Certainly. So Brian and I have worked on a fund for a number of years, and we wrote some stuff for trading that works. And whenever you have something that works in trading, like you modify it every so often. And if there's no real discernible depreciation in terms of alpha brought to the table, it kind of gets a little boring because you just do R&D to see if you can improve things. But if it's kind of just printing money, you kind of start wondering what else is there. And we've been talking about NFTs for a while. And last year, we talked about being able to build a utility across NFTs, because there were a lot of projects that were like, yeah, you know, we're going to build this thing for this specific collection. And we thought that was a little, a little lame. We wanted to build something that was across collections. So we made a fight club called death.finance that people could bring their NFTs to, and they could fight them. And there was staking and a lot of other cool stuff that we were working on. But we found a lot of difficulty in onboarding people because they were worried about the security side of things. When you have a high value NFT, a lot of these things are kept in cold storage, or people are just like very scared to sign transactions because of all the hacks which have happened. So we talked to a number of game developers and found this was a common difficulty. So we wanted to begin like really focusing on improving that user experience. And so what we eventually came up with was something called the Compose Network, which is a way to basically sign a message with one wallet. And that message we use as proof that you own that wallet. It could be an empty wallet. Like it could be some empty wallet that you sign a message with. And then after the fact, you send all of your valuable NFTs to that wallet and keep it in cold storage. And because you signed a message that we gave you as a challenge earlier, demonstrating you have control of that wallet, we basically make another wallet for you on another network called Compose that allows you to use any assets in the wallet on the originating chain. That could be Ethereum, Solana, whatever. And in this way, like you basically have all your assets on Ethereum 
and secured by Ethereum, but you are able to utilize them on a separate sort of smart contract decentralized network. And that allows you to, whenever you're actually getting utility from these NFTs, never have to worry about losing them because you legitimately cannot. We call the process reflection. And so anything that happens on Ethereum or any originating network is reflected on our Compose network. So if it gets transferred to somebody else, you know, it goes to somebody else's wallet and there's another owner. But all of these sort of derivative things that come with it on Compose are maintained. And so one such example of this is say that you have a game that you want to launch. And so you launch it on Compose and you launch the NFT on Ethereum. And the NFTs are all like characters to be a part and play in the game. And then as you start utilizing and consuming those NFTs on Compose, you get other equipable NFTs like levels for leveling up items, etc. And so you begin to actually sort of have a composable wrapped NFT. And if that NFT on Ethereum was to be sold, all the utility and all of the derivative NFTs on Compose would transfer to the rightful owner through the reflection process. And so I could kind of go down this rabbit hole. But strictly speaking, what we're trying to do is offer people the ability to have sovereignty over their assets, which is what Web3 does a great job of, but to have another network that is much more conducive for game developers and utility developers. And it allows them to focus on building like games and such versus like security software. Because we push the security off to Ethereum and leave it there. And we just say, hey, you know, you don't have to worry about your users losing these assets. Just focus on what you're best at doing. So that's that's kind of the approach. And so is this also like complaints I've seen people have of if I'm a noun holder and I need to mint some other derivative, but I have to have a noun, but I don't want to use that noun in case of a scam or something. Is that kind of like the delegation to another wallet I've heard people talk about? That is something which can occur on the Compose network. Okay. And these sort of derivatives that you talk about would be issued on the Compose network. So that way you'd never lose like your blue chips. Yeah. So where are you guys at in the development of Compose? So we had a testnet, very, very early, early testnet, but it involves a lot of adaptations and updates to the Tendermint protocol. And so that's just taking a bit of time. And we've been focused more on the user-facing side of things with an application that will effectively accomplish all the things which I've already talked about, but it will be completely centralized while we're getting the network stood up because it will still accomplish the same goals and added benefits. It's just that it won't be decentralized yet. And so that's kind of like the lean sort of approach of get that sort of user-facing side of things up, get people using it, and we should be able to have that in App Store, et cetera, here in the next month, I'm hoping. Oh, wow. So very soon. Yes, pretty soon. What happens after that? There's just time of iterating with users, integrating with more utility game developers. And it's really just about becomes a feedback loop at that point. And then we are going to be putting more time, energy and resources into the actual network. So that way we can do the whole end to end process here in the next. I mean, the network we approximate from now will probably like mainnet will probably take like two years. So it's a, it's a long sort of project, but we think that it has a lot of merit. Yeah. And how long ago did you first have this idea? I want to say that we had the idea for an entire network in like February, just because we had difficulties with onboarding users and found this to be a common theme with game developers. But the original utility stuff came last year, like in September or August. Wow. And then where can people learn more or keep updated about Compose? 
we're keeping a lower profile, but we're going to start focusing more on our socials. If you go to HTTPS colon slash slash compose.art, there's a white paper. And then you can reach out to the compose.art team as well. I'm on Twitter. Brendan's on Twitter. Probably the best means of going about it at present. We're kind of heads down building the mobile app. But after that's released, we'll have a lot bigger sort of social presence. Awesome. That's really exciting. And then Chet, as we're wrapping up, is there anything you're working on or you want people to know about outside of Nouns, outside of Rocco? Outside of Nouns, outside of Rocco, I'd say the only thing I want to shout out is, you know, I mentioned that I work with students who are pretty amazing and then develop kind of their own stuff over the summer. I had a team of three that I was working with that made their own NFT project that's a little bit based on Nouns. There's like a daily component. I think I talked about it a little bit a little earlier, but I wanted to explicitly shout it out. It's called Keyo.ai, so K-E-Y-O.ai. And anyone can go, you know, now, and if you connect your wallet to it, You'll be able to keep your scores recorded, but you'll have to try and guess with a Wordle kind of style game what prompt was used to generate the image that's displayed. And if you win, then you can share with your friends. It resets every day, every like 25 hours. And, you know, if you win first, you can mint the NFT for free. And if you mint second, then it goes up by a little, little bit, so on and so forth every day. I think it's a cool concept. Really proud of them for getting it together and getting it out, getting it launched. And so they launched, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. So wanted to shout that out, Keo.ai. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm looking at it right now. It's kind of like <laughs> we were just talking about prompt engineering. It's really interesting to reverse it. That's the goal, man. The goal is to be a little bit educative on how you can do prompt engineering, like learning what prompts are used to generate the actual good images. That was kind of the uh, one of the core pieces behind it. And then I'm looking at it now, and it's not the exact same thing as Wordle. So do you maybe want to explain for those just listening? Because there's a couple of other features, right? So if you want to know how to play, there's a how to play button in the top left corner. But essentially, your goal is to guess the caption used to create this AI generated image. It's kind of like multi-wordle. I wasn't familiar, but apparently that's a thing where you type one word and it that's the word that gets guessed across all of the words that you have available. So, you know, in this case, there's four words that were used to create this prompt. Every time you guess a word, that word will be guessed across all of them. So, you know, it is technically possible for some prompts to guess one word and get two correct words completed. And the scoring is based off of how many words completed you get with each guess. But yeah, you just type in any word. Um, it works on mobile too, so you can tap in with a keyboard and you are trying to guess the words that were used to generate that image. And every time you guess, it'll give you a familiar kind of like Wordle output of like, you know, the green and yellow of where the letters are supposed to be and where they're not. But also there's kind of like a bunch more to it where each specific word, you can see that Wordle for that specific word, but you're trying to get the whole phrase as a whole. So it's a cool concept. It's definitely a little bit harder than Wordle, but I think it's a pretty fun game. We've been playing it just us pretty much daily. I think it's a really cool platform and they're building on top of it. So they're going to build some more, the more interesting projects on top of this site. Each one of them has a team that's building on top of it for the next 10 weeks. So I'll be excited to see what they do with it. That's exciting. And one more time, shout out, how many students were originally behind this? This is just three. Okay, that's awesome. It's a really neat idea. They're incredible. Well, thank you guys for being here. Thank you for taking the time to chat about Rocco AI and everything else. I had a great time and I learned a lot. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the invite, CDT. This was, this was a blast. Yeah, thank you for having us. Alrighty, talk soon, guys. Take care.